Our text today is in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 24, and I'll be reading through the end of the chapter. I don't know what voices you have been hearing this week, voices that because of their, um, their influence, um, maybe their volume have somehow distracted or unsettled you, and I don't know how much you've been able to hear from the Lord himself. But what we will be doing today is hearing from the Word of God and then hearing from our brother who is going to help us hear the Word from God. And so I pray that our, our minds and that our hearts and that our wills would sit under and be able to hear God this morning. The Word of the Lord to the people of God. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself and he has granted him the right to pass judgment. Because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this. Because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life. But to those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing of my own. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will. But the will of him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's, Because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, these very works I am doing, testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another? But don't seek glory that comes from the only God. Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For you believe, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you ever believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jim. Good morning. If you don't mind, I'd like to open us with a brief word of prayer. Dear Father, we come to your word right now. 
and I confess to you that if the spirit who inspired these words does not use them to speak to our hearts, uh, we will not be changed. And I pray that you would not let that happen today, that we would not leave here unchanged, that you would enable us to hear your voice through these words. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this last Tuesday, I'm sitting on the couch in my living room with, with Amy, with my wife, and we're just kind of hanging out there. I'm on the internet, and I come across this video, which is describing an audio clip from 2018, this, this audio clip that was apparently a pretty big deal uh, about four years ago, and, and I do not remember this at all. I completely missed it. Maybe you will know it or recognize it when you hear about it, but it's this it's this audio clip that was going around, uh, that was being posted, and, and all that the clip was was this person, this voice, saying a name over and over again. And yet when some people heard that audio clip, what they would hear, the name they would hear over and over again was Laurel, in a deep kind of male voice, Laurel, Laurel. And then others, though, would listen to that exact same voice, and they heard a completely different name. They would hear Yanny, Yanny, and actually in like a higher-pitched voice, Yanny over and over and over again. So I was like, that's kind of crazy. So I decided to listen to it. And so I start to listen to it, and then I'm thinking, I think actually I found the wrong video because I was expecting, you know, something kind of ambiguous that I'm going to have to kind of really listen for. But this video clearly says Laurel, Laurel over and over and over again. And so it cannot be the right video. So I'm, I'm about to look for something else. But first, I just, I say to my, to my wife, Amy doesn't know what I've been looking at or reading. I just say, hey, what does this say? And she goes, she listens, she goes, Yanny? I said, are you serious? She said, what are you talking about? I said, it says Laurel. And she said, are you serious? And I said, yes, it says Laurel. How are you hearing? She says, no, it says Yanny. How are you hearing? And we sat there in this kind of huge fight there for a minute about what this video with this audio clip was actually saying, you really need to go check it out at some point. Please don't do it right now. Don't pull it up on your phones. I'll be too distracted by hearing the word Laurel, Laurel over and over again, which is what you will hear. <laughs> but if you want to start a fight with your spouse or roommate or friends, go check that video out after you're done. I find it really, really fascinating and a little bit frustrating that two people can sit and listen to the exact same thing and yet hear something completely different. That's odd to me. Hearing is a really big deal in the Bible. It's a really big deal because God speaking is a really big deal in the Bible. This is one of the defining characteristics of Yahweh in the Old Testament is that he is a God who speaks. That he's a God who reveals himself to his people by his word. And you see this come up multiple times in the scriptures that the, the psalmists, the Jewish writers, will praise God for being a God who has made himself known through his law or through the prophets or through creation over and over and over again. And they will stand this in contrast to the pagan gods all around them, to the idols who the psalmist will say have mouths but cannot speak, to the mute and dumb idols that others are worshiping. Unlike them, our God, he speaks to us. We can hear from him. And, and because God is a God who speaks in the Old Testament, that means God's people are a, God, are a people who hear. 
There are people who listen to him. This is one of the very first things that happens when God pulls his people, the Israelite people, out of Egypt, and he brings them out of slavery to Mount Sinai, where he's going to speak to them, where he's going to give them the law. But before he does that, he says this in Exodus 19. Now, if you will carefully listen to me, And keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. If you will listen to me, if you will hear me, you will be my people. And so this becomes a big refrain that the people of God should listen to him and listen to the prophets. The greatest commandment in all the scriptures, as a matter of fact, is simply titled in Hebrew, hear. Hebrew word is shema. We call it the shema. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And this theme of speaking and hearing, it continues as we move into the New Testament. But once you get there, it centers, the the speaking, the listening, the hearing centers around the person and work of Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews opens his book like this. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And because he, all this centers around Jesus, Paul will say that this is actually the way that you enter into the covenant of faith is by hearing about Jesus. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. And because hearing and Jesus go so much together, it should be no surprise to us that the places that use this word the most in the New Testament are the Gospels. That's where you see the word come up the most. In John's gospel alone, it is used 58 different times, talking about people hearing of Jesus or hearing his teaching or hearing about the things that he has done. And oftentimes, generally speaking, in that gospel, when you hear or when you read about hearing Jesus, it's kind of implied that that hearing means belief. That it means understanding and knowing and faith. Like in John 10, 27, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Or in John 8, 47, The one who is of God hears the words of God. Hearing means believing. Most of the time. Not always. There are instances in the scriptures, in the Gospel of John, where people hear from Jesus, but all they do is hear. It does not, they hear and they don't believe. They hear and they don't accept Jesus. Quoting from the prophet Isaiah will say that there will be some who will be ever hearing, but never understanding. In that way, Jesus is a lot like a viral internet audio clip. That you can have two people stand in the same room and listen to this man from Nazareth teach these words, and one of them hears at most a good teacher or at worst a blasphemer, and the other one hears the very voice of God. It's not just in the Bible. That's something that plays out in life all the time. Some of you grew up in homes with brothers and sisters who had the same parents that you had 
who told them the same things about Jesus that you heard. And you went to the same church services they did over and over again, and yet it did not result in a hearing that was faith. Some of you went to youth group and Sunday school and church camp with some friends who heard the exact same messages, the exact same gospel as you heard, and it did not lead to faith, at least not a faith that had roots. And you saw them kind of shrivel up, blow away after college How does that happen? What's the difference between a hearing that is believing and a hearing that's just hearing? It's what we're going to explore today as we dive into our text in John chapter 5. You can go there if you want. It will be on the screens. This passage is a continuation, though, of the story that we heard last week. So we're really just kind of dropping right into the middle of a conversation that's already happening. Steve preached to us from the beginning of chapter 5 last week where Jesus heals a man, a paraplegic, who's been that way for 38 years, but he heals him on the Sabbath. And this causes a controversy between him uh, and the Jews, John says. By the Jews, he more than likely just means the Jewish leaders who kind of represent the people. They come to Jesus and they confront him about those things. Jesus basically answers them and gives them this defense. My father is always working, even today, even on the Sabbath. And so I can work too on the Sabbath. That's a big statement. And that leads us to 518. We read it last week, but I want to read it to you again because this is key. John tells us, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus says, I don't have to obey your rules because I am God, and I don't have to follow those things. Now, some have pointed out that this chapter really kind of plays like a courtroom drama. You have the crime that's committed at the beginning, the crime where Jesus heals someone born on the Sabbath, and then you have the charges brought against them from the religious leaders, and then you have Jesus presenting his defense. And what we're going to see today is Jesus is going to call a series of witnesses to the stand to testify on his behalf. But we open with this key statement in verse 24. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. There's our idea, if you caught it. Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Those who hear and believe Jesus, it's the same, he says, as hearing and believing God, the one who sent me. And if they do that, they have eternal life. They have already passed from death to life. And then in the next few verses, he will kind of outline this further. I'll just kind of sum them up for you. In 25 and 30, Jesus takes these two key ideas that were kind of seen as prerogatives of God alone in the Old Testament, the right to give life and the authority to judge. And Jesus says, me too. Just as the Father has life in himself, he has given it to the Son to have life in himself. Just as the Father has the authority to judge, so too I have the authority to judge, he says. And again, these are bold and strong claims. These are big statements, and they're statements that need to be backed up, statements that demand some bit of evidence. And so now Jesus will call four, maybe five, we'll explain that later, witnesses to the stand to testify on his behalf. The question 
as these witnesses begin to testify is simply this. Will Jesus' listeners hear them? Will they hear what the witnesses have to say? Jump down to verse 31 with me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying by that that he can't be trusted or anything like that. No, his word is enough, but he's playing by their rules. In a Jewish court of law, a person's testimony could not be validated by them alone. It needed to be validated by at least two witnesses. And so Jesus goes, I get it. It doesn't work this way. Will you just listen to me? So I will bring others before you. Verse 32, there is another who testifies about me. And I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So the first thing he brings is John the Baptist to come and testify on his behalf. He says, I don't need human testimony to affirm me, but for your sake, I will bring John. And John, as we talked about a few weeks ago, was widely recognized as a prophet of God, was widely recognized as someone who spoke with authority and someone that the people respected, even if the leaders were a little bit hesitant to admit those things. And John says some incredible things about Jesus. Even in this book here, we saw back in John 129, where John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then in 134, John says, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. So Jesus says, John testifies on my behalf. But not just John. He'll go on and say in verse 36, but I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish these very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. So the next witness is his own works, his own miracles that he is doing, which are called in the Gospel of John signs over and over again. That's what they are. They're not just magic tricks. They're signs that are designed to point to something about Jesus, to testify and reveal who he is. And let's not forget that he's saying these words right on the heels of one of those signs. The third sign, he heals this paraplegic who's been laying there for 38 years. And so that's actually what sparked this. And there are a lot of people who will look at Jesus in the Gospel of John, and the signs will give them at least some level of belief in who he is. But now, Jesus will call the ultimate witness to the stand. Verse 37 the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. This is the ultimate witness because the Father, the God that they claim to be worshiping, is the one who is behind all the other witnesses. And he testifies to Jesus over and over again through sending John the Baptist, through the miracles that he gives, through the scriptures that he gives. And he testifies at Jesus' baptism. Behold, or this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he testifies at the transfiguration about Jesus. Over and over again, God comes and testifies about who Jesus is. But we don't just see the ultimate witness here. We also see the ultimate problem. And that is that Jesus' opponents can't hear any of this. This is what he says. You have not heard his voice. And then later, you do not have his word residing in you. Why? 
Why can't they hear these things? Why can't they grasp these things? That's, that's the question that we're asking. What is it that keeps a person from hearing with faith? What is the difference between the hearing of belief and the hearing that's just hearing? In the following verses, Jesus is going to point out three different things, three different but interconnected things, these three roots of unbelief, if you will, these three big factors that prevent real faith in a person. But first, he's going to bring up the next witness. Verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. So the fourth witness is the scriptures that are testifying about him. And then the fifth, if you want to call it a fifth, it's really kind of an extension of the fourth, is Moses. Jump down to verse 45 with me. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? So the first big factor that undermines faith in a person, that prevents a person from hearing Jesus properly, is this misusing the scriptures. We're going to spend most of our time on the three. We're going to spend the most on this one because this is the one Jesus spends the most time on. But I want you to catch it. I did not say misunderstanding the scriptures. I said misusing the scriptures. They are misunderstanding the scriptures. But that's not the biggest problem. The problem is not so much that they lack the training or the knowledge they need to read these things. No, these are people who have given their whole lives to understanding the scriptures. It's not that they don't know how to read and exegete particular texts. No, no, Jesus says you pour yourselves over the scriptures. The problem is that they have missed the entire point of the scriptures, which is Jesus. They testify about me. He says. This is the consistent refrain from Jesus and his disciples and his apostles that the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament that these people held in their hands, that they were ultimately about him. Now, a brief tangent here for a minute, a little bit of a side note, because I know there are some of you who might be thinking in your mind, really? Is that really true? Like, I, I get how some of the prophecies, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who will be pierced for our transgressions and by his wounds we're healed. I get that that's about Jesus. Micah 5.2, the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. I get that that's about Jesus. But all of it, like David and Goliath, like the ten plagues and the Exodus, that's pointing to Jesus? And the answer is yes. It's what the Bible says repeatedly. Now, if what you're expecting is that every verse you read in the Old Testament is going to be saying something about Jesus or pointing or deliberately prophesying about Jesus, then no, that's not what the Old Testament is doing, though there are some of those things. Jesus even says in this very text, Moses wrote about me, and he probably has in mind when he says that Deuteronomy 18:15, where Moses says, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me from your own brothers. You must listen to him. Ever since that time, the people of Israel were waiting for the prophet to come, looking for him. And so we see instances where there seems to be a direct prophecy to him. But the Old Testament points us to Jesus in a lot of other ways, actually. Here are just kind of a handful of them for you to kind of keep in mind. One of the ways the Old Testament points to Jesus is by telling a story that has no resolution without him. 
The story of the Old Testament, really about God's people, Israel, picks up in Genesis 12 specifically, where God calls Abraham and says, I want you to follow me, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make a great nation from you. And then he says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you and through your descendants. And so what we do is we track through the Old Testament all the way, the way that uh, Israel is pointing in this direction, watching to see how this will unfold, how God is going to bless not just Israel, but the whole world through them. And if you come to the end of the Old Testament, there's not much there. The resolution, the climax really comes when Jesus steps on the scene. So one of the ways the Old Testament does this is by sending us in the direction of a story for him. Another way the Old Testament points to Jesus is by drawing a thousand little silhouettes these little shadows that point us to a greater reality. This outline gets kind of built for us out of the Old Testament, and then Jesus steps into the picture and completes the outline, and we're able to see it. Like when the people of Israel are told that they must slaughter a Passover lamb, and they take the blood of that, and everyone who has the blood of the lamb over the door on their houses, they will be saved during the time of the Passover. And then God institutes uh, animal sacrifice. And the way that your sins are paid for, the way that they are covered, is by the death, by the sacrifice, the bloodshed of an animal. And the idea is that we would read all that, and that would be in our minds, so that when John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, we're supposed to go, Aha! That's what God was doing. That's what God was setting us up for. That's what he was showing us. Or or like King David, who becomes in the Old Testament this quintessential figure for the ruler of God's people. This is what God's people need. This is what they want, a ruler, a king, just like David, almost. Because David has so many things that, that are really great about him. And he does so many things, but he has some deep moral character flaws and so it leaves us going ah oh, if we could just have a king like that but but better but more and then Jesus comes from the line of David and becomes what we're looking for the old testament also points us to Jesus by revealing the brokenness and sinfulness of humanity and whole, and by holding up a mirror to let us see our own brokenness and our own need for a king and for a savior. It does it by displaying God's character over and over and over again so that when he shows up in the flesh, we would recognize him. But the religious leaders did not. They missed it. And rather than letting the law draw them to Jesus, they let the law and the prophets become the point. They let this book and their ability to follow this book become the point, and so they missed it. I was overseas a a while back. Actually, give me just a second. I'm going to tie my shoes so I don't trip and fall off this stage, okay? Give me a second. It'd just be so distracting, right, for me to break an arm in front of you guys. Okay. Uh, Several years ago, 15, 16 years ago, my wife and I, before we were married, we were on a team that went overseas to northern Cyprus. We went there for the sake of, of being able to do missions work, being able to share the gospel with people. During my time while I was there, probably my best friend that I made was a Turkish student by the name of Efe John. We just called him Efe. And Efe and I got really close. He was uh, really funny, had a great sense of humor, really perceptive and generous, and just a good friend of mine. And uh, one day, I remember actually kind of feeling like I was dropping the ball with him. I was not doing a very good job, and so just praying for God to give me more opportunities to be able to talk with him and, and to share. And, and shortly after that one day, uh, he comes to my door, and he's like in a huff. He's just kind of 
frustrated, and he's kind of pacing a little bit, and he's talking, and I'm saying, what's going on here? What's wrong? And, and F.A. tells me, he says, I, I, I decided recently that I want, to, I want to learn some stuff about Jesus. I want to be able to read a Bible, but I cannot find one anywhere. And he said, I started, I went to the university library. We were living on a university campus. I went to the library, and I asked, and I looked, and they don't have one. And so I was in the library yelling at the librarian, why don't you have any Bibles and all these things? And, and so he's saying all this, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Now, F.A. didn't know that we were there to do missions work, but he did know that we were Christians. We were very upfront about our faith. We had talked about Jesus multiple times. So, so he knows, like, I'm a person to talk about this. So I said, hey, man, um, I might actually have one that you could use if you want. And he says, really? And I'm like, yeah. So I go and pull out a box underneath my bed where I've got a number of these. It's called an Injil. It's a Turkish New Testament. It looked exactly like this. And I said, dude, if you, if you want it, you can have it. And he's like, seriously? I'm like, yeah. So I, I handed it to him, and he took it in his hands like this, and he thanked me. And then he went, like, right up to his room. And what, what he did next was pretty remarkable. He goes to his room, and before he opens it up, before he even turns a page, he goes and he takes a shower, and he cleans himself to make himself clean and pure before coming to this sacred and holy book. And then he picks it up, and he begins to read it. And I think he told me, I can't remember, I think he told me he actually read it on his knees at first, and he sat there reading it. And then after he was done reading, he read a few chapters of Matthew, and then he put it on a shelf. He deliberately put it on the highest shelf in his room specifically as long as it was higher than his head because he wanted to show deference to this book, honoring it by the way he lived, made a point that he would never put this book on a chair or on his bed or anywhere where someone might sit because this deserves better than that. And he never gave his life to Jesus. He never chose to follow him. But I remember just being so impressed by the way that he treated this book, treating it with more honor, uh, honor and respect than any Christian I had ever known. I was so impressed by that. And I remember the day when I realized that God was not. That God was not impressed with the way F.A. handled this book because what F.A. did was he honored this book and failed to honor the one that this book is about. Because he respected this and treated it as sacred and then refused and rejected the very one that this book speaks to. You know this, that God was not impressed with the way that F.A. handled this book. And he is not impressed with the way we treat this book sometimes. He's not impressed with your Bible studies. And he's not impressed with my Bible degree. And he's not impressed with your memory work. And he's not impressed with your quiet times. If those things are not ultimately drawing you to Jesus... If those things are not increasing in you a love and a faith and an obedience for his son, Jesus says to his opponents, you pour over these scriptures because you think that by them you have life, but there is no life in and of themselves in this book. The life that this book gives you is by giving you Jesus. It brings it to you when it brings you to him. Now listen, this is an incredible, beautiful gift from God for us, one of the greatest gifts he's ever given to us, but only if we allow it to do what it's supposed to do. And if we don't, then it actually might work against us, just like Jesus' opponents who used the scriptures to bolster up their own confidence in their own self-righteousness, because we keep the law. Just like the people that I went to Bible college with, some of them, who used this very book to 
to puff themselves up with pride and arrogance at how much they really knew. And for some of them, we watched the very knowledge that they claim to have lead them away from Jesus. Or like people who come to this book uh, to give themselves a boost of self-esteem and feel better about themselves and, and remind themselves how valuable they are and it gives them a peace of mind that maybe they shouldn't have as they continue to live in their sin. The point, the reason that the scriptures exist is not to teach us how to live and it is not to make you a better person and it is not to give you inspiring examples of faith. The point is to help you hear and trust and love the Son of God. That's what they're here for and if we misuse them and make them about ourselves, it will lead us away from him. But there's a second obstacle that was mentioned in those verses I read to you, a second thing that keeps people from believing in Jesus. It's really a very simple one. One of the things that will keep people from hearing Jesus is this, not wanting him. Not wanting Jesus. This is what it says in verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Literally in the Greek, it just says, you don't want to come to me. Why are his Opponents unable to believe in him because they don't want to. Which actually works the opposite of the way we often think about faith, right? We often think if a person doesn't want Jesus, it's because they have not been given compelling enough evidence, because they've not found enough valid reasons to believe in him. Jesus says, for his opponents at least, it's the opposite. It's they cannot find enough compelling evidence because they don't want to. And it's not that the other way doesn't exist. It's not that there aren't people who are legitimately trying to discover truths about Jesus and are legitimately trying to find those things. It's just that if you think faith is just a matter of if you hear the right things and know the right things and you're going to believe, you've got, you're, you're oversimplifying it. It's more complicated than that. And more importantly, the human heart is more complicated than that. None of us comes to Jesus from a place of neutrality. Because the truth is, he makes some very big claims about himself, and if those claims are true, then he also has claims on my life. It's naive to think that that's not going to affect what I will believe about him. The religious leaders knew this, that to trust in him and to submit to him meant giving up their power and control and authority, and they didn't want that. They're not the only ones. The American philosopher Thomas Nagel, who calls himself a secular atheist, touched on this very idea in what I think was an incredibly honest piece of writing from his book, The Last Word. He says there in that book, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And my guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. What Nagel says is the truth is I, I don't want there to be someone who has authority over all the universe and therefore over me. And I suspect, he says, that there are many like me, I think he's right. John says he's right. He told us as much just a couple chapters earlier in John 3, 19. This is the judgment. The light, Jesus that is, has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It's not 
light has come into the world and it just wasn't quite bright enough for people. It's not light has come into the world and people just needed a little bit more proof that the light was really the light. It's that all of us, without the work of God in our lives, in our flesh, in our sin, we naturally choose the darkness over the light. And this is connected to the third great hindrance to the faith that Jesus touches on in verses 41 through 44. He says this, I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. How can you believe if you accept glory from people, but not from God? He doesn't answer this question because the answer is obvious. You can't. This is the third great hindrance, seeking glory from people rather than God. The more you crave human approval, the more you delight in the glory of human beings, the more you desire to make yourself the point and the center of the story, the less ability you will have to believe. Why is that? Well, the most natural explanation for this, the most simple answer is that we live in a world that opposes Jesus, a world that loves the darkness. And so faith in Jesus, commitment to Jesus, following Jesus will at some point put us at odds with the world, which means if I will have to choose at some point between pleasing God and pleasing people, between following him or being liked. And as I told you several weeks ago, I love to be liked. This is something I need to be aware of in my own heart. John describes this very issue in chapter 12. He says that there are a number of people actually saw the things Jesus did, heard what he said, and it caused them to believe to some degree. It caused them to at least agree with this point. He probably is the Messiah, and yet they would not publicly commit themselves to him for fear of the social consequences. Here's what he says in verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. There's another reason, though, that this kind of attitude, this seeking glory from people, will hinder your faith. It's because this kind of attitude is deeply linked to pride, to ego, which stands opposed to faith. Faith requires humility. Faith requires a recognition of my need and a willingness to admit dependence and trust in somebody else. Andrew Murray was a Scottish minister who served in South Africa in the 1800s. He wrote a book about this. In that book, he says this, faith and humility spring from the same root. Thus, we never can have more of true faith than we can have of true humility. He'll go on to say, it's not that you cannot intellectually agree with the statements of faith. It's, it's not that you cannot have some assurance or conviction of the truth about Jesus, but as long as pride is still reigning in your heart, that makes real faith, the kind of faith that is empowered by God, it makes that kind of faith an impossibility. Jesus put it this way, truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying 
that you've got to have a childlike wonder or a childlike innocence to come into his kingdom. He's saying that entrance into the kingdom requires a true understanding of your need, requires you to grasp this fact, I bring nothing to the table, that I cannot fix myself, try as I may, that I cannot redeem myself, try as I may, that I need Jesus and his grace. The good news is that Jesus is, when we recognize that, so quick to give it. It's funny how two people can sit in a room and listen to the exact same thing and hear something completely different. Just imagine what can happen in a room like this where three to four hundred people sit in a room and hear teaching from John chapter 5 and how many different things they might be hearing So this might seem a little odd to you, but in just a minute, what we're going to do is close out a sermon on hearing by sitting in silence. But that doesn't mean that we're done hearing. At least I hope it doesn't mean we're done hearing. I'm praying that it doesn't mean we're done hearing. The reality is that there's at least three different kinds of people listening in this room right now. And the hope is that you will be able to discern which one you are. There are some of you in here, many of you in here who have heard the voice of Jesus for a very long time. And so when you hear him speak from John 5, you recognize that voice. And the truths that he speaks here feed your soul and they bring joy to you. If that is you this morning, thank God for that good gift from his spirit. But also examine yourself. And be aware when one of these three tendencies, the tendency to make scripture about yourself or, or the tendency to, to, to not want to submit to King Jesus or the tendency to crave and desire human approval, where those things are present, be willing and ready to root them out so that they do not root faith out in you. There are others of you in here who have heard this kind of message and have heard the exact same things as all the others in here, maybe your whole life, maybe you've sat in a thousand different church services and heard these things forever, and maybe you've even come to a point to agree with those things, but the reality is all you've ever really done is hear them. Hear them, acknowledge them, agree with them, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but the truth is that has never produced any real faith in you, any fruit, any obedience or love for him in you. If that is you today, I want you to know, first, the door is still open to you. Jesus isn't done reaching out to you. Jesus isn't done calling out to you. He, he still comes to you in his grace over and over again. But I would say to you what the writer of Hebrews says to his own listeners multiple times. He's writing to these listeners who know all the truths about Jesus. They've come and they've heard all the things, but they're wavering in their commitment. And they don't know if they want to follow through. And so three different times he quotes to them from Psalm 95 and says these words. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Three times he says that to them, and I say that to you today. That if you have sat through a thousand church services with a hard heart, with no love for Jesus, that you would not allow your heart to grow hard and cold in this moment. There are, I hope, some of you in here who maybe are hearing this for the first time today. Or maybe you've been hearing some of these things for the first time over the last few months and you've been kind of processing and trying to figure out what to do with those things. I want you to know this. The very fact that you're here is at least some indication that Jesus is speaking to you.
that he's calling to you. And I want you to know that he speaks to you today from this text. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. This offer is for you today. He extends it to you today. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a couple minutes and sit in silence and and My hope is that you'll sit and answer this question, which of the three am I? And God, will you please speak to me? Show me more of Jesus. Give me more love for Jesus. Increase my faith in Jesus. Take a couple minutes to do that now. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. Now we're going to celebrate that reality through a time of communion because the, the truth is this, that our hope is not found in our ability to hear and believe. The reason we have eternal life in Jesus is our hope is placed in this, that the one we are trusting in has given himself for us. That he died for our sins to save us from that. That he resurrected again to conquer death on our behalf. And so that is why we can come together on a Sunday in celebration of all that he has done, taking part in the body and the blood. And so, brothers and sisters, this is Christ's body, broken for us. Let's take and eat together. That this is Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink with joy and faith. And now, let us sing in celebration of that fact. <laughs> 